As of 2020, there are more than 130,000 foundations in the U.S. holding 1.7 trillion in assets and providing more than 82 billion in grants. Some foundations are large and recognizable, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but many are much smaller and can be found in nearly every community across the U.S. Some assume that foundations are simply philanthropies designed to give out money. However, foundations can often use a range of strategies to influence policy across areas such as economic development, public health, and much more. I'm Brian Marroquin, a junior editor for the Georgetown Public Policy Review, and today we'll explore the role of community foundations with Saul Anderson, president and CEO of the Evanston Community Foundation. We'll learn about the field and how his foundation approaches community building, public policy, and race equity. Let's go. Saul, it's so great to have you join us today. Yeah, great to be here. Great to be here. I'm proud to call you a friend and colleague. So as people like to do their friends, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. <laughs> so uh, Saul is an exceptional leader and an even better person. He gets things done for the community and brings people in each step of the way. Uh, prior to his work at the Evanston Community Foundation, he led I Grow Chicago, an organization that addresses the root causes of trauma and violence through a wide range of holistic supports. Prior to that, he was executive director of LIFT, a national nonprofit that invests in parents to build well-being, financial strength, and social connection. Saul has a long track record in youth services as a youth coordinator in the city of Evanston, an academic director and tutor, and so much more. But what he's probably proudest of is his family, both his family's story of perseverance and faith and the future Saul is building as a husband and father. So Saul, before we jump in, I just wanted to let people know not only who you are, but also the joy and love that you bring to this work. So uh, thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. So if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Evanston, Evanston, Illinois, and the, the mission of the Evanston Community Foundation. Evanston is a relatively small suburban community directly north of the city of Chicago. So the south end of Evanston borders the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago, right along the lake. But we, and it's sort of best known for being the home of Northwestern University. So that's how most people kind of know, know Evanston. Um, but Evanston is much more than just a university and much more than I would say just a, a suburb of Chicago. So the sort of joke is, is that Evanston sees Chicago as a south suburb of Evanston as opposed to itself <laughs> as a north suburb of, uh, nice. <laughs> of Chicago. Um, but beyond that, it's incredibly, you know, particularly relative to other you know, other than north suburbs of Chicago, a really diverse community, not just racially, but I think most importantly, sort of economically. So to kind of put it in, in plain terms, uh, about 12% of the residents of Evanston are uh, live below the poverty line. And, and that's not, you know, an overwhelming number, especially relative to Chicago, where I believe the number is north of 20%. Um, but when you compare that to our, our, our two kind of closest neighboring suburbs, so the suburb of Skokie, about 5% of the community residents live, uh, live below the poverty line. And then Wilmette, the next community north of us, it's like 2%. And it's, it's really interesting because our, our sort of median um, income here is about, family income is about $102,000. In Wilmette, it's about $144,000. In Skokie, it's lower, about sixty dollars to $70,000. So when you really look at like the, the wealth and then the level of poverty here, <clears throat> and that's definitely connected to 
Evanston being a, you know, a diverse community, have a large, you know, relatively large population, I believe about 18, 19% of the residents here are African-American and about um, 9% are um, Latinx, Latino, Latina residents. And so, you know, we know in America, the poverty is concentrated more among communities of color. And, and so it just creates a lot of unique dynamics here uh, that don't necessarily exist in other suburban communities and makes the work here, you know, beautiful and complicated and tiring and, and messy, but uh, really important and really rewarding. Uh, and so the Evanston Community Foundation, our, our charge is to create a, an equitable, vibrant and inclusive Evanston. Um, so we try to work with the resources in our community and leverage those resources. And I would say more than leverage them, we try to amplify and magnify those resources in community to provide Evanstonians with the things that they need, the supports that they need, through our grantee partners, but also through some of our program work to give everyone an opportunity to, to thrive. That, so that makes sense to me also just in the role of, of, like you said, kind of bringing people together, maybe from all walks of life and, you know, kind of with our, with our topic, I, I think of for any, for any student of public policy, it's, it's crucial to understand who the stakeholders are, you know, who maybe is driving a policy and who has a seat at the table, who doesn't. Um, so that's why, you know, I think it's crucial to understand the role of foundations. And there's this great book by uh, a guy named Joel Fleischman. He's a professor at Duke. It's called The Foundation, um, where he makes the case that foundations are are full of paradoxes. So, for example, he says, uh, you know, foundations should be free and autonomous uh, to fulfill their mission of improving society. Um, and yet, because of their tax status or just the special baby privileges they enjoy, they must also somehow be accountable to society. Um, and then another paradox he mentions is, you know, foundations can be influential in advancing the public interest, um, and yet many Americans remain largely unaware of what they do and how they do it. So, you know, given your experience also having worked across many sectors, uh, you know, what stands out to you about the impact that community uh, community foundations specifically have? You know, what's what's unique about them? I think the number one thing that's unique about community foundations that that really you know, it sounds like a simple thing, but I think it actually plays out really interesting in the community is that, is that community foundations raise funds to create an endowment to exist in perpetuity to serve the geographic area from which those funds are collected, right? So, you know, traditionally, you'll see a lot more foundations might come from the wealth of one single family, um, and they endow a certain portion of that, um, or might come from a, a large corporate gift. Uh, but most community foundations raise their money from a number of residents across the community, sort of do that on a continual basis, really more so than, than, than other foundations might, um, with the idea that those funds then get reinvested back in the community. <clears throat> and, and I think what that means, you know, from a practical perspective is that we're a lot more deeply connected, from my perspective, we're more deeply connected to the communities that we serve than a lot of other foundations. I mean, we all, all foundations, you know, when you hold money, like we're small to mid-sized community foundation. Um, we're about high 30s, low 40s, in the millions of assets. We have some some funds coming in. So I do know the numbers, but, you know, we have one fund <laughs> yeah. that's coming in that we're, you know, we're bringing in that that, uh, that will change our, our endowment size a little bit. But, um, that's great. you know, but still, I mean, that's that's small, you know, next to like a, another community foundation in our area, Chicago Community Trust that has, you know, <laughs> much more than that, that amount, yeah. right? We're much smaller than them, but that's still like a lot of money, right? Um, yeah. And so we have to wrestle with like being an ivory tower institution, all foundations do, because once you get that sort of money, 
and it's endowed in a way that you know you're going to kind of always be around it, it it becomes difficult you know um going back to my like community-based nonprofit days right where you're scuffling every day just to make enough money to keep <laughs> the lights on right this is a different game um but i do think that you know community foundations particularly you know the smaller to mid-sized ones right like sort of tend to draw people from the community within the community and there's sort of a you know people come i think this is just my interpretation right from how i've worked with community foundations in the past as a fundraiser for nonprofits and also as a leader is i see a lot more people who work at the evanston community foundation who live in evanston who are invested in this community um in a different way like even myself i live here right so the work that we're doing means something for my son right so there's like a level of investment that i have there that, that goes beyond the grants that we're making right the relationships that we have with the other institutions and community are incredibly important and and by virtue of the resources that we have the doors that get open to us by being a foundation we have a real responsibility to like stand up for the sector here in a lot of ways for the, the civic sector the community you know nonprofit sectors and nonprofits in, in our community and the people here we kind of have to figure out what we need to be for evanston at any given moment in time based on what evanston needs um to to, to be the best place it can be yeah i really like kind of your you naming that element that uh, about sort of the ivory tower piece and just the fact that you know there there are resources there i, I kind of think of about it like you know com community foundations taking hopefully the best of both worlds sort of from philanthropy so still yep. being a steward and catalyst for resources but also remaining very connected to their community in yep. in a way that many nonprofits are right we you know obviously i think you, you all fund nonprofits but uh, but you're also yourself very focused on that on a mission yep. that isn't about profit that it's about you know broader work in the community absolutely it's a it's a really unique hybrid and i think that you know coming from the background that i come from this was the type of you know philanthropic work foundation work that felt most comfortable to me right because of that element that you mentioned sort of the sort of hybrid element the tie-in to community and the you know the real connection to the, the way the work unfolds impacts my life on a, in a very real way um and, and that's that's meaningful to me and that's something i've always tried to bring to my work throughout my career is like a personal connection and not that you can't do that in a larger private or family foundation but but it feels different here um yeah. than, than the way i sort of you know experience the work of other other foundations that's great well kind of along those same lines and given that community foundations now kind of breaking them down a little bit they're considered public charities um, for irs purposes um, there can also be this view that they must be apolitical. You know, some folks may perceive that they have to be, or, or otherwise, just have to be very careful. You know, and perhaps avoid altogether kind of wading into anything that resembles policy advocacy. So, you know, given that perspective, um, you know, why engage in policy advocacy at all? You know, how, how do you address that concern about you know the role that community foundations may need to play? Yeah, for for us at ECF, you know, community listening is very important another thing that i you know drew from from our experience at lift brian that i was really glad to see here was this real orientation towards listening right so we engage community members in our grant making process right we have communities community members from all walks of life who review grant applications and all those sort of things um, because evanston has a federally qualified health center we got a larger than average uh sort of allocation of ARPA, American Recovery Plan Act funds um, that came here um, relative to our, our size. 
And we, you know, partnered with the city, with Northwestern University, a few other organizations in the community to kind of do some town halls and roundtables to get feedback from community members and community organizations, including we co-hosted the first, uh, the first community, large-scale community meeting ever held um, in Spanish in Evanston's history. So we're really proud of that as a part of that. We engaged like 500 community residents around like what people felt like were the best use of ARPA funds and community, right? And so, you know, we, we have a real orientation towards listening. And I guess for me, when I look at it and I say, we're here, we raise, we've raised our funds, we've built our endowment and community members in Evanston. We have a responsibility to those community members by virtue of our mission, but also like, you know, if we raise this amount of money from people in the community, we, we owe it back to them in, in a real way. So if we talk to that many people and they tell us what they want, and we don't take that and do something with it, then I actually think we're falling down on our mission, right? Now, now that may not be capital P politics, right? But it, it's it's small P politics. And, and, and in many ways, those are the kind of politics that mean the most to me anyway, right? Like it's just looking at people are sitting here telling you, we need this and we have the space, right? Like, you know, MS is not some huge political machine, right? It's a it's eight square miles, it's 75,000 people. You know, people can, you know, walk up to the mayor on the street at the grocery store and have a conversation with him or an alderman, alder person, council member in a different way than you can in the city of Chicago, to be sure. But we still have doors open to us and we have opportunities to sit in spaces that most of those 500 community members who spoke to us don't. So like, we owe it. We It's our obligation to take that and do something with it, right? And, and to keep knocking on the door and keep, you know, when, if it, you know, or, and keep sitting at the table and representing that voice because people invest in not only their resources, but their time and energy into telling us what they need. And so, you know, that's not, like I said, it's not capital P politics, but it's not apolitical either, right? We're, we're, we're supposed to be here to respond to community need. We're supposed to hear community need and we're supposed to leverage not just the resources we have at our disposal, but we're supposed to be able to bring people together. Um, to, to move on those things too, right? Because, you know, almost no foundation in the world on its own has enough money to, to really fix the problems that we have in our society, right? Um, so, so we've got to leverage the, the various partners and that includes, you know, governmental entities. It includes, you know, the city government. It includes, um, you know, we have two school districts here, one for the elementary middle schools and the high school is its own district. A little bit of a funky thing here in Evanston. It's not, okay. it's kind of unique, but, um, and so we have to work with those partners. And then, you know, Northwestern is not, it's a, it's a private university, but like it's a host into itself, right? It's a $6 billion endowment organization, one of the leading, you know, one of the foremost sort of educational institutions in our nation. So like we have to work with them too, right? They, they, and they are, they are at play when it comes to things. And like, we touch the community in a way that maybe those other places don't. And so we have to bring, bring their voice to the table. And so for me, that's what our policy work is about. That's great. No, and I, I love that kind of tying back to what you said about the first, that first large scale meeting in Spanish, I think just kind of, you know, it sounds like trying to think of new ways to really engage people. I'm sure that was a challenge during the pandemic and, yeah. uh, you know, making sure the voices were heard. So I don't know if you have any sort of lessons learned or, or, or things that you're thinking about next as far as that community engagement. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things stood out to me. So one, you know, we often chunk these conversations into sectors, right? So we talk to the youth serving agencies, we talk to organizations and community members who had, uh, 
who are presenting the challenges like specific to our Spanish speaking community members, right? Um, and then, you know, we did some workforce development stuff. And then there were conversations going on amongst some of our business leaders in the community. And ultimately everybody was saying the exact same thing about what they needed. My, my, my joke was like, we go to the Chamber of Commerce or our Downtown Business Association and they're like, we need more workers. We need more people, right? They're talking about the, the labor shortage in, in America yeah. and all those sort of things. And then I'm sitting and listening to the conversations of community members saying, we need more jobs. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, it, it, just, it just struck me. Cause like, so I, I really often in my career been on like the community member side, right? I've, that's like, that's where my, my work has taken me for the most part. And so I was, I figured people would be saying that they needed jobs, but for the people who are the providers of jobs to be saying, we need workers. And for those two conversations to be happening at the exact same time, perhaps in different locales, but within the same eight square mile community, yeah, like, that's a that's a bit of a head scratcher, right? It's like, why can't we come together on that? And so again, another opportunity for us as the foundation to like bring those voices into the conversations that are happening on the other side, because we're a member organization, the Chamber of Commerce. I sit on the board of the Chamber of Commerce here, right? So I owe it, you know, to those voices that I heard to bring into that conversation, bring those voices into that conversation as well. Because I'm really, I mean, maybe another, I don't want to speak untruthfully, but in my immediate recollection, there's like no other nonprofit organizations at the table in the Chamber of Commerce or connected with some of our, our business associations, right? And many of those business leaders are our donors and have donor advised funds with the Evanston Community Foundation. So like, I get a chance mm -hmm. to talk to them in ways that maybe the community organizations won't. And that, that like I said, that, that, that really struck me um, during that conversation and then just just hearing how um, how much the world I think the, the, the voices of the people who felt unheard for decades upon decades like there was this and it's unfortunate it had to come from this but like with the pandemic exacerbating all of the challenges that people were facing and the death of George Floyd and and you know the fight for black lives taking place all across America. I think a lot of marginalized folks like saw this crack and like kicked it all the way open, you know? And, and so for my little like, you know, community worker heart, it did my heart good to see those voices <laughs> like saying, we got a chance, we got our chance to hear our voices heard and we're not quieting down until things change. And so um, that really struck me as well. I was so glad to be able to sit in the seats that I sat in professionally with Lyft, with iGrow, and with ECF during the course of this, you know, two-year pandemic and and all of that, um, two plus years now, that that to hear those voices like swell and grow and pick up steam and pick up volume and then not let go of the space that they had were able to to hold uh, and, and push for more, that was really powerful as well. Oh yeah, that's that is really powerful. I, I it actually kind of gets at another question I had for you, and it, it kind of around the sort of the long lasting impact of, of that, that, that we've experienced up until now, especially um, sort of around race equity. So just wanted to share with you first, uh, President of Georgetown, Jack DeJoya recently hosted an event with, uh, with Darren Walker. He's the president of the Ford Foundation. And, you know, Darren Walker is well known in philanthropic circles, you know, uh, in part because he's, uh, well, the head of the Ford Foundation, which is uh, <laughs> a very large, large that'll organization. Yeah, absolutely. yeah that'll, that'll <laughs> but, um, but also, you know, he's uh, he's challenged, and he did this in the event uh, here at Georgetown. But he's challenged the wealthy really to to grapple with how harmful wealth inequality is, in particular, to democracy. But there was something I, I was sort of struggling with 
that I hadn't really noticed before, I think. And it was, the program was titled Philanthropy and America's Racial Reckoning. Mm -hmm. And the term racial reckoning has been used quite a bit, you know, in media and other circles the last few years. It, it wasn't unique to this Georgetown event, but it kind of hit me in a new way. I sort of seemed to notice it in a new way because um, I actually thought back to something uh, a social worker told me once really early in my career, like literally fresh out of undergrad. Um, you know, it was my first week on the job as an AmeriCorps member. You remember those days? Yeah. Um, be, uh, being trained to work with people one-on-one, -on -one, mostly around employment, you know, people looking for jobs um, and accessing um, public benefits. And this was in 2009. It was like right on the heels of the economic crash of 2008. My trainer was a social worker named Carlton. Uh, he was a black man. He had a lot of experience in the community. He had worked there for many years, um, really knew the, the community. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He says, you know, I, I know they're calling this the Great Recession, but this community has been in recession for as long as I've been working here. So where, where were the headlines then? You know, he asked. Um, so I thought about that as I was at this event with this kind of term racial reckoning, because I was curious, so what does it really mean to have a racial reckoning? You know, do we run the risk of it just being sort of a, a temporary, you know, bit of jargon? And, you know, I, I wanted to ask you that in particular, because, uh, you know, I know of the work that the Evanston Community Foundation and Evanston as a community is doing on reparations and just want to think about what we can learn about this, you know, quote unquote, racial reckoning. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And, you know, as as a black man myself, these are questions that I've tossed around in my head. There's a couple places where my head goes. So first of all, it's impossible for me to sit here you know, as the president of a community foundation and not say that there have been, there has been change since, you know, my grandfather was born in 1919, right? And, you know, and even my dad being, you know, born in, in, in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you know, near the, near the King and Anderson plantation, which is, you know, very likely where my last name comes from, right? And think about the movement that has been made since his birth, right? But Brian, as you alluded to, you know, my own personal story has has some things, you know, my, my dad's one of 14 kids and all 14 of those kids, my grandparents' kids went to college, right? So, so like that opened up these doors for me. And, and then I think about, you know, the reckoning for me is like when I was a kid, I used to think, wow, my family's like really brilliant to have this all happen, you know? And that was like, a, it was a point of pride and it still is, although not in the same way, right? You're young, you're, you know, you're, your mind sort of shifts around these things. And as I got a little older, I thought, you know, my family was really lucky, you know, to have things break like that for them, for all of those things have to happen in the way that they did to open up doors for me, you know, my cousins, my son, you know, my nephew, my nephews, my niece, you know, they are all spoiled to death and have so much more than we, than my brothers and I had as kids. But as I've gotten older, to bring it back to the reckoning, I start thinking like, it's really kind of jacked up that that had to happen and break that perfectly for me to be here, right? Like, like just for me to have that opportunity for all 14, all, you know, my dad and his siblings to go to college, for me to be, you know, something that, to be able to reach a height in my career that, that I have, like where I grew up, I'm the only, you know, my brothers and I are, you know, there's certainly folks working good jobs and things like that, but we, we leapt over like the average outcome for the families in, in the community where I grew up on the Southeast side of Grand Rapids, Michigan, right? And 
and and and I know that's because all of those things broke right. And so like like it it, it just you know to think about how hard it is just to get to be like <laughs> middle class, right, or upper middle class or whatever, right. And I look at you know some of my colleagues and friends, you know, uh, white friends who who didn't have to have that story, right? Like their their grandparents or parents could work like labor jobs and then send them off to great schools, right? Cause like those doors were, those opportunities were different for them. And so, you know, and then I, again, it's because it's always hard for me to like forget the neighborhood that I came from, right? I look at like the outcomes of the young people that I grew up with, right? Like I have, you know, friends who are spending the rest of kids, you know, I grew up with, went to school with or spending the rest of their lives in jail. Kids I grew up with who died in prison, who, you know, strung out on drugs and all those sort of things and i think like that's what gets lost when we have this conversation about reckoning is it's not we always want to compare like the outcomes of the highest achieving folks who often had like all these good breaks and all these lucky moments and all these sort of things happen and what we're not talking about is like the people who didn't have those opportunities that didn't have those things break right for them and like how what what is their path to opportunity and i'm here to tell you from personal experience it's very limited Right. Not just from my you know, personal experience, my professional experience. Right. Like I've seen brilliant young people who, you know, are caught up in the violence and trauma of the streets here in Chicago, where I grew up in Michigan. Like I've seen those things. And so I know it's not about talent because like I've, I, you know, I've looked people in the eye and seen their brilliance. That, that's the that's where the reckoning comes from. And I think, you know, it, it's how we create opportunities for those folks who don't have, you know, doors open for them sort of with luck and, and, and hard work certainly, but luck and good fortune is so often a contributing factor. And so, you know, I think what, what Evanston is trying to do with our reparations work, so long answer to a short question, but you've known me for a while, Brian, you know, you know this is how I, how I operate, <laughs> is, is that, you know, we have to come to terms on some level with the sin the greatest sin, the original sin of our nation, right? The exploitation of black labor, of black bodies, and how that dovetails into the experience of all other communities of color in America, right? Folks with, you know, generations upon generations of wealth in this, in this nation were very often able to attain that. And even people who just, you know, were able to get by so often you were able to attain that using the blood of black folks in America. And, you know, not only does that trap you economically in a certain space, right? And educationally, but also the more we understand about the brain and trauma, right? You get trapped sort of psychologically in some of these cycles as well, that it's really impossible to break out of unless you have some very specific, targeted, powerful interventions to kind of break this cycle of thought. And, and so like, and that's on an individual level, we're not talking about the, you know, millions of black folks in America that you have to be able to do that for. And, and, and some of that is just investing more intentionally, separately and, and powerfully in black communities, right? And, and, and I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to exclude my other brothers and sisters of, you know, the melanated among us, you know, when we have this <laughs> conversation, but like, if we can't get the sin of the exploitation of black folks right, we're not going to fix any of this other stuff either, because for America, you know, and certainly, and I certainly don't want to live out the, leave out the indigenous population in this too, because it's very true there as well, right? If we can't get over those yeah. sins, 
then 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 we're not going to fix the other ones. And so right. I know Evanston sort of has a couple of different reparations things going on. So first of all, we were the first municipality in the United States to pass reparations legislation. That reparations program right now is specifically built around providing housing to people who can prove that they had relatives, ancestors who lived in the community during a very specific time frame, and then they get somewhere in the neighborhood of $25,000 to support housing needs, everything from repair to down payment and anything like that. Um, and they did have to do a lottery for that because there's not an unlimited amount of funds. Illinois recently legalized recreational cannabis a couple of years back, and so the tax revenue from cannabis is being used to sponsor this program for 10 years for $10 million. And it'll evolve into other things, I believe, but it's pretty limited to like economic development and housing sort of spaces because of the limitations of what <clears throat> municipalities can do. We have a separate fund that we're building. We're working with a group called the Reparation Stakeholder Authority of Evanston. It is a community group that is still seeking 501c3 status. So we are kind of asking in some ways as the fiscal sponsor for them, but they hold a fund with us, almost like an agency fund or a donor advice fund. Typically, we charge a small fee. We are holding this without fees. We work regularly with this group in a way that we don't with other fees, without, excuse me, with other funds in our portfolio. And we are you know, raising funds to build this to a fund that will be endowed forever to be able to do more flexible reparations work. So things like, like cash in the hands of, people, of Black folks in Evanston, right? Like, you know, that's a thing that a lot of people in the community want. Um, and there's a very strong case to be made for that, right? And, Again, you and I have done cash transfers work in our past, and we know how powerfully that can change the outcome for community yes. members. So, um, and do things like of that nature. So that, you know, to me, that gets at going back to the reckoning. It's like, how do we invest in communities to make it so they don't have to have such a unique story like mine to be able to sit in this seat? You know, mm -hmm. but like Absolutely. somebody can maybe just be born poor and black and not be so likely to be trapped in that forever you know, that they're kids. And in Chicago, Chicago itself, actually you're more likely to lose sort of economic standing from where previous generations are among black communities than you are in any other community in the US. So, and you know, mm. that's Chicago, not Evanston, but like the spirit of that yeah. reverberates across the community. So, so there's a lot of work to be done, but we've got to invest so that it, we, we really want to save people, you know, give people the chance to quote unquote pull up their bootstraps, then we got to give them some shoes and 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 and, and yeah. not ignore the fact that they've been shoeless for generations. And so that's what we're trying to do with reparations here. And there's a long way to go, um, but we're starting. And our communities of faith are really stepping up here. Um, you know, we got First United Methodist Church here in Evanston was mm -hmm. the church where the first black resident of Evanston came as an indentured servant to a couple who was a member there. They recently, their congregation recently donated $50,000 that they raised in the course of a year from the congregation. I know they're working on this and planning to make other gifts as well. Uh, Lake Street Church, which was once First Baptist Church, just gave half of its building to Second Baptist Church, which was born by Black congregants of that church who left to start their own church as the Black population grew as they felt marginalized. So like, it's happening in different ways and unique ways here. And, and that's what it's gotta be. There's gotta be some sacrifice to have a real record. Absolutely. No, it sounds like there's also just this remarkable history there in Evanston and how, you know, just reading about some of the work going on, I, I'm really in, both inspired by it and I'm, I've been fascinated to sort of see the, the debates, the sort of disagreements amongst friends sometimes that happen with, you know, this notion of um, maybe tackling a very specific component of the effects of slavery and, and the intergenerational trauma around housing, right? Housing is so central to that. 
And yet it's not just that. It's not just wealth building through housing. And right. I think part of what it sounds like you're saying is that, you know, the Community Foundation, I'm sure others, you know, the church, like you said, have been a part of uh, asking that question of how can how can Evanston and how can all of us really think more broadly about the work, make it long lasting um, so that, you know, we maybe actually do fully honor this idea of reckoning that it's not just a temporary thing. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you, you know, an important piece of the reckoning is to not assume that you can do one thing that everybody's going to accept and go on, because that's another piece of it, too, is that we felt like, well, we did this one thing. Why haven't all black people move forward? Right. We have, you know, <laughs> affirmative action, whatever the heck that, you know, means. So why are all these black, like it's because, you know, there's not one single solution. When you think about the various mechanisms of oppression that were used on on black folks and other people of color in this country to say we're going to fix that by one, you know, one type of, of fix doesn't actually get at how uh, deep and devious the oppression was, right? You've got to create multiple options and you've got to listen to people for what they need, right? Some people might have a home and, and not need that and, and might just say like, you know, I have a home and I have these things going, but what I need is, is X. Like I said, it might be cash in hand. It might be, you know, I want somewhere to take my children where I can show them the powerful history of Black folks in Evanston and help them feel like a sense of pride about it and know that they can be those things as well, right? Like that could be a piece of it for some people too, like in the cultural art space or educational space. So like, we got to listen to all of that. Let's have dynamic solutions to a deep and, 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 and complicated and complex, you know, problem and, 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 and uh, that, we've, that we've had, not just in Evanston, but all over, all over our, our nation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Sal. No, I really appreciated that. We're running out of time here, so I wanted to make sure we uh, got a got one more question in. Given that this is a you know public policy review, and we have lots of Georgetown students that want to have an impact in the world, I wanted to ask you know what do you, what advice do you have for policy students, or really for anybody that um, wants to impact change and is perhaps intrigued by this uh, community foundation or foundation work? You know, how can they enter the field and and how can they make change? Yeah, I think. The first, you know, I kind of have, I have two pieces of, of advice or <laughs> recommendations from Saul's perspective that I give. The first one, and both of them I've kind of alluded to earlier. The first thing I will be is that, first thing I'll say is that you really need to listen if you're going to affect positive change. And I say this even as someone who grew up in a working class neighborhood, LMI neighborhood, right? And went to college and went to graduate school and have built this like a career that I'm proud of, right? I've, you know, created opportunity for my, for the future of my family through that. And, you know, um, I don't know what people, you know, I don't, I don't even know the people who live in the block I grew up in are dealing with today because I'm not there anymore. And I've moved out of that sort of level of challenge by virtue of the work that I've done. So even if I wanted to go back home and do something different, I can't say I'm going to fix Ballard Street from what I knew, you know, 20 years ago when I, when I moved out after, you know, I graduated from college. I have to listen first, right? And so... And for folks who don't have that experience, you've got to listen doubly hard and pull your own perspective out and not say, I'm going to listen to this and then I'm going to fix it with my perspective, you know, my, because I because I know because I went to Georgetown or I went to XYZ school. Right. Like, you know, that's that's not what listening is about. Listening is about hearing people and, 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 and processing what they're saying and building things around what they say that they need, because you've never, you know haven't gone hungry, you haven't slept under a viaduct or slept in an abandoned building or anything like that, you can't tell people what poverty is all about, regardless of how smart you are. That's just the, that's just the way it is. Um, and so listen first, 
And the second piece I would say is that sometimes the politics of human interaction can be just as powerful as the capital P politics and the things that happen in you know state legislatures or or at the federal level or you know in municipal government and those sort of things like helping to support people taking that listening and developing local initiatives that just make life a little bit easier right in communities right if you've got a food desert <clears throat> you know you might want to work with the city to you know you're working in a food community as a food desert you might want to work with the city to get zoning changed to try to you know get some tax abatements or whatever and bring a grocery store to the community but in the, in the meantime, you can find a lot and, and try to start a food, start a, try to start a farmer's market there, right? Mm -hmm. Or work and try to start a community garden in there that can feed the neighborhood and things like that, right? Like you can, things like that can be steps on the way to the ultimate solution. So it can't just be policy change or bust, right? Like it's gotta be building the community, strengthening the community, engaging with the people in the community, listening, doing what they need, say needs to be done and then taking steps to get to the ultimate solution, right? Like it'd be great if everybody had, you know, an organic grocery store that was affordable, affordable relative to the, you know, median income in the community. Um, until then, there's other ways that you can have, make those solutions happen. And so, and I think wherever you really jump in on that spectrum is fine, right? Like some people wanna do the, the community organizing, grassroots, build the farmer's market, build the community garden work. Some people want to pass the, you know, work with this, the legislatures and their, you know, respective legislatures and make that stuff work. But those answers are like they have to come together. Whether, regardless of what size you work on, it's all powerful. It's all important. But you got to talk to each other to make it work for the, and, and talk to the community to really make it work in, in a way that's going to elevate the community in a way that you care about. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Saul. It's always a pleasure. I always feel inspired and motivated by not just seeing what you're doing, but you know, connecting with you. And uh, so God bless you. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, same to you, my friend. Always, always a pleasure to have some time with you and had a tremendous amount of respect for you for a very long time. And I'm uh, always here whenever you need me. Thanks so much, though. Yeah, all right. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to today's episode. To learn more about the work of the Evanston Community Foundation, please visit evanstonforever.org. To learn more about the Georgetown Public Policy Review, including to see a library of previous episodes, please visit gppreview.com. This is Brian Marroquin signing off.